The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Service. Good morning, my Voice America listeners, and welcome to our show this morning. I'm so very happy you could join us on now our 13th show and the final live show of the season. It's been great, and we've had some great guests and some contributors on the show. Over the last 13 weeks, we've brought you the listener resources, and we've spoken with special educators, special education attorneys, behavioral specialists fitness and nutrition and community integration specialists. These people have all devoted their lives to help and support of people living with disabilities. Now, I know you've gone through your challenges over the last week, and I do hope that you remember to focus on a couple of your successes because you had them. Amongst all those challenges, there were things that worked out very well for you. Sometimes what we find is that through interagency efforts, that our friends and family members with developmental and other disabilities can be successful. And interagency collaboration has been something that I've been working on for like 25 years. It's the first uh, workshop I actually ever gave was on interagency collaboration. How the schools, the regional centers, medical offices, occupational therapists, other specialists could all work together to uh, promote good service and good quality programming for our clients. So, you know, what what, what is interagency collaboration? Um, interagency collaboration in systems of care is the process agencies and families joining together for the purpose of interdependent problem solving that focuses on improving services to children and families interdependent problem solving. This idea that people are working together. Hodges and Hernandez in 99 came up with this concept that in, that problem solving can be interdependent. It can be dependent on different organizations, different agencies trying to assist in different particular areas. A more general definition is which is offered by Linden in 2002 states collaboration occurs when people from different organizations produce something through joint effort, resources, and decision-making and share ownership of the final product of service. This collaboration can occur on multiple levels, from frontline collaboration amongst caseworkers and families, mental health providers, teachers, and others, to collaborative relationships between policymakers and administrators responsible for addressing organizational mandates, financing, and management. 
In addition to state and local organizations, interagency collaboration can involve public, private, and or faith-based sectors as partners. As all agencies invested in serving youth and families are partners, participants may include parents and family advocacy groups, among others. In current child welfare practices, the Family and Child Plan, or Case Plan, defines the service and supports of the needs for the family. Now, within the regional center, we call them Individual People Plan, IPPs. In our school settings, we call them IEPs, Individual Education Programs. These are ideas of, of, of programs that are put together in advance so that they're goal and objective oriented and people have something to follow together because each agency is going to have to do a part. An examination of these plans reveals gaps created by a lack of funding, differing mandates, differing organizational cultures, and lack of effective communication. So sometimes one agency may see a direction it wants to go in and see it as the primary direction where another agency may work with a client and feel that that's not the appropriate direction to go in. The problem with that is not that each individual agency wouldn't do a good job, that the collaboration isn't there. What we try to do is get that collaboration going. Collectively, these problems point to the need for systematic change. System change will allow more individuals with disabilities to work through their challenges with a team at their side. It is interagency collaborations that will allow for the resources to give disabled people the opportunities they need. It's their right to have the support so that they may be success, have successful, productive lives. Whether it's in, a, in educational community programs or medical supports, psychological behavioral assistance, programs have been created to assist disabled people and laws have been developed to support their needs. Often, this means interagency collaborations. Parents, parents request guidance and instruction from professionals after a diagnosis of a disability, including autism or other intellectual disabilities are confirmed because of the many complex systems that are involved that they have to be able to understand. The education system is directed to individuals, is directed by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act including the IEP, which must be tailored to fit the needs of the child and the adolescent. Intellectual disability systems has supports to assist with the pursuit of wavering funding and the individual services and to prepare and monitor the individual support plans. The mental health behavioral systems offer service coordinators to assist with finding resources and individualized services. That's, for instance, the regional centers have service coordinators within their program so that they can assist with getting the right programs out there for individuals. The medical system is complex and it requires and provides, it requires providers who are knowledgeable and are able to coordinate primary care, dental, vision, nutrition, and other specialists to promote integration into the medical home model of care. The idea is to supply the appropriate services within agencies, interagency collaboration, so that the person doesn't have to be institutionalized. The person doesn't have to go outside of their community in order to get the support that they need. The marginalization has occurred for years, and it is something that it continues to be worked on. Even in 1954, the established educational format in the United States was segregated 
segregating blacks and whites students into separate schools. And that was declared unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court during the ruling of Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, it wasn't the only case. This, but this caused a great deal of unrest in the political sphere <clears throat> and marks a gateway moment in the civil rights movement. Education was an important aspect of the civil rights movement. The years that led up to the formation of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975 were marked by strife in the United States. From the assassination of JFK in 1963 to the Vietnam War, going ongoing from really 1955 to, to 1975. On top of these events, the civil rights movement was in full force in the United States. More schools being integrated into the integrated to the Montgomery bus boycott from the Greensboro sit-in marches on Washington. Eco rights for all was a prevalent ideal. President John F. Kennedy showed interest in mental retardation studies, and President Lyndon Johnson used federal funds to increase the research on, quote-unquote, at-risk youth. Early intervention programs for children living in low socioeconomic situations, such as Head Start programs, began showing up around the country. So you've got medical situation or medical providers, education providers, community providers, all working together in order to develop a well-rounded program for a, a kid. Education was soon at the forefront of many political agendas. Just as various races have been discriminated against, as have the disabled been marginalized. For, for many decades, you know, we talk about marginalization and it's, it's quite often that people were trying to assist, but they assisted by segregating and separating rather than seeing the, a reason to pull together. For many decades, issues of ableism hurt disabled people and didn't allow them into the community. Ableism, also known as disableism or disability discrimination or handicapism, is discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities. Ableism is characterized as persons as defined by their disabilities as inferior to non-disabled individuals. On, the, on this basis, people are assigned or denied certain perceived abilities, skills, or character traits. We often will talk about somebody based on their diagnosis. Oh, they do that because they're autistic. They do that because they have an intellectual disability or they're mentally retarded. We don't see the person and the individualized person. So we throw all these character traits into one disability label. Dis discrimination faced by those who have or are perceived to have mental, re uh, mental disorder is sometimes called mentalism rather than ableism. These are stereotypes associated with various disabilities. These stereotypes in turn serve as a justification for ableist practices and reinforce discriminatory attitudes and behaviors towards people who are disabled. Labeling affects, affects people when it limits their options for actions or changes their identity. L let me say that again. Labeling affects people when it limits their options for actions or changes their identity. It's a big deal when we put a label on somebody. We're saying that they are this or they are that. And we're not, and what it tends to do 
is, yes, it drives service because you say, okay, people with autism need certain services. People who are deaf or hard of hearing need certain services. But then at the same time, it also could almost be a put down. I remember when uh, the idea of what's called theory of mind, it's the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person, which people with autism often have difficulty doing, but everybody doesn't have difficulty doing it. And some people are very apt at understanding how others are feeling and and how they can be empathetic. So when we say to uh, a population of of people with autism, you don't have any empathy, you have mind blindness or or the inability to to understand where other people are coming from. It's, It's a big put down. And it's a put down that comes from a label of, of of autism or saying that he's autistic, that's why he's doing that. In ableist societies, people with disabilities are viewed as less valuable to society or often even less than human. The eugenics movement of the early 20th century could be considered an example of widespread ableism. The mass murder of disabled in the German Nazi government's Action T4 which could be an extreme example of ableism. So eugenics was this idea of of the more individuals with disabilities have children, the more people that they'll be out there with disabilities, which is not true. And we've seen many people with disabilities have children and the children are typical in their development. But there is this concern that if you this was the concern of the eugenics movement that you would dumb down society or bring down society by allowing uh, people with less than average ability to exist. Well, we're a human kind. We are not ones to banish people from our human society because of a disability. But and and in some way people believe that what they were doing was the right thing that it was appropriate to assist the 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 world by getting rid of anything that could cause problems or could could bring down the the intellectual abilities of others and and it simply is not the case in fact we found through the flynn effect that as time has gone on and people have been gotten more and more access to services and education, um, there have been uh, uh, much more productive individuals out there. Other definitions of ableism include ideas, practices, institutions, social relations that presume able-bodiedness and by doing so construct persons with disabilities as marginalized and largely invisible to others. Admison and Tara define ableism as a doctrine that falsely treats impairments as inherently and naturally horrible and blames the impairments themselves for problems experienced by people who have them. So, for instance, again, back to this idea of, oh, he does this because he's autistic. I, no, no, no individual ever does something purely because of their diagnosis. We all do things to survive. We all do things to attempt to be successful. And sometimes we have to manipulate our environment in order to do that. So when we say, oh, he's doing that because he's autistic or he's doing that because he's mentally retarded. Well, is that a put down or is that a success? I believe it's a success. I believe that any advocacy that somebody can put out for themselves 
is a positive. And we want to see this within the community and we want to see this within our different agencies. It's very hard for agencies to work together, but it's imperative that they do. So you have this conundrum that it's very difficult, but it has to happen. So we at Total Programs make an effort to contact schools, contact outside medical offices, contact other places where our clients are in order for us to not just help them, but to be on the same page, to create what's called a milieu, this idea that everybody's kind of thinking in the same way, that we all have the same goals, that we're working towards similar successes, and that we're not stuck in a, a mode of, well, he's autistic, so he gets one, two, and three, and if he was visually impaired, then he'd get three, four, and five, and if he was deaf and hard of hearing, he would get two, six, and seven. You know, we, we can't cookie cutter our services, and we as agencies have to work together. We have to understand that we are a big community, and the community involves three major things. One, home. What are you doing at home? How successful are you at home? What services and what agencies could help you at home? Two, school or work. What things are happening at your school or your work? Are you getting the right resources you need in order to be successful and to be productive? Are you getting the right coaching, the right assistance in, in the job situation so that you're not failing at your work and you're not seen as a, a as somebody who's, um, because of their impairment, is, is inherently unable to do something. With the right supports in place, we see that people are able to do much in the community. And that's what Total Programs has been about for 20 years, looking at how we can collaborate with other agencies in order to best serve our clients, our families. The, the third area that I didn't really state was community. Community is so important. I've had so many shows about community, community integration. So when we return from our break, uh, which it's time for now, we'll continue talking about community and people with disabilities in the community and how they've uh, uh, been thought about. So thanks. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be, and our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR 
or visit TotalPrograms.org. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back, everybody. Um, over the last 13 weeks, we've had a lot of good conversations, a lot of good topics. Um, what we haven't had is a lot of call-ins. And I'm really hoping that in our second season, we will figure out a way to get more people calling in so that they can get some of their questions answered. Maybe through the shows alone, a lot of questions were answered. But I do want to make sure that you know you have the opportunity to call up and ask questions and especially when we do have the specialists on board on the show so that you can get it directly from the horse's mouth. So we're talking about communities and we're talking about how people with disabilities are created, are, are treated in the communities and how we've created interagency collaboration systems in order to best serve people. And we, <clears throat> we were talking about marginalization. We were talking about the term ableism which is kind of a derogatory term for a disabled person saying that they, in a sense, are are not able to do certain things and focusing on their inabilities. Within communities of people with disabilities, there's disagreement about whether referring to themselves as disabled counts as an internalized ableism. These groups may prefer the terms non-neurotypical or non-neurodivergent for mental divergences, when referring to people with disabilities, there are two methods, first language and, and disability first. So person first language and disability first language, really into person first language. But the American Psychological Association advocates the use of person first language. This might look like a person who is blind. The idea behind this method is uh, to make the person the focus and not their disability, as the idea behind this method is to focus on their personhood. Person-first language, it would say, an individual with visual impairment. Sean has visual impairment. Not, sh- not their. Sean is blind. You know, it it makes for one me have a. I'm a person first, and then the idea of my disability and my disability culture could be linked. Disability first language involves referring to the disability first. For example, a blind person. This method may be preferred by people who feel that their disability is part of their identity, and using person first language separates disability as part of their identity. Preferences between person first language and disability first language can vary per person and disability group. Now, there's been a lot of slang, a lot of slang words that have been used out there for our individuals with disabilities. And, you know, you thought, well, I thought he was talking about interagency. Why are we talking about this? 
I'm talking about ableism and the language that's used be, uh, around people with in, disabilities because that is what pushes community to assist or not assist. And when they're in the assisting mode, that's when we see the interagency abilities. That's when we see groups that can work together. When they're in the non-assisting mode, they're into this marginalization. And that marginalization usually occurs when there are severe uh, challenges that go along with the disability, such as behaviors. Um, but another thing that's really hit hard in the disability uh, world has been all the slang that's been used. Now, sometimes these words were in the, the uh, contemporary vernacular, and sometimes, they, and, and, and at that point when they were in the contemporary vernacular, they weren't seen as a, a put down. But slowly these words do creep into everyday language. And this is where it becomes a problem. So some slang words that describe people with disabilities include cripple, daft, dim-witted, feeble-minded, idiotic, madman, retarded. And see, we say these things like, oh, he's so feeble-minded. Oh, that was idiotic. Oh. I can't believe how retarded that was. We make statements like that. And why is language that's used in the community so important? Well, it's what people think. Labels last. The reason why we don't use retarded anymore is as the community began to use it as a bad word, downing people with the use of the word. Thus, we say intellectual disability. It, it just became commonplace. that People go, oh, that's so retarded. I can't believe that they would do that. And most people are not discriminatory. Most people are not feeling like they've done something wrong by using the word. They don't even they don't even think about it because it becomes so common. And that's where we as professionals need to change the words so that we don't have what are really called um, well dark words or, or come from ugly laws until the 1970s ableism in the United States was often codified into law for example in many jurisdictions so-called ugly laws barred people from appearing in public if they had diseases or disfigurements that were considered unsightful so it literally was illegal for you to go out if you had some kind of disformation or 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 dysfunctional developmental growth pattern maybe you were small maybe tall the idea is that if you didn't look good enough for the community you couldn't be in the community you would scare people and that the community didn't deserve that without any regard at all to the individual's needs section 504 and other sections of the rehabilitation act of 1973 and the American with Disabilities Act of 1990 enacted into law certain civil penalties for failing to make public places comply with access codes known as ADA access. So we finally got to a point where society said, hey, you know, people with disabilities have the right to be able to wheel their wheelchair down the street and be able to get off a, a curb without falling, being able to get into a building where the doors open in the right direction or the doors are automatic, being able to get into a hotel room where the sink is lowered or then the toilets are lowered so that you can get on them from a wheelchair. Different things, movie theaters now that will play movies quietly while keeping the lights on just a little bit in order to assist anybody with sound sensitivity or anxiety. 
So we have been able to put certain things into place to manipulate the environment in order to uh, better assist people. Um, we have laws that expand the use of certain adaptive devices, such as TTY, phone systems for the hearing and speech impaired, some computer-related hardware and software, wheelchair ramps or lifts on public transportation, and curb cuts at intersections which allow wheelchairs and their users to safely move between sidewalks and crosswalks. In addition, these laws prohibit direct discrimination against disabled people in government programs, employment, public transit, and public accommodations like stores and restaurants. One of the biggest reasons why we have our community integration program is that, well, frankly, I'll be damned if I won't allow our clients to get into a store that they like or a place that they want to be or walk uh, uh, down the street in their own community and, and feel safe and feel desired. Our program has done everything it can to help the community adapt, to get to know people. We've worked with police. We've worked with local stores. We've worked with local libraries. We've worked with all sorts of community agencies in order to collaborate together to make good programs and have people have access. See, now here's the thing. You can have access, which means legally you have access to go there, but the place really is not ready for you. It's not ready for you maybe behaviorally. It may not be ready for you in regards to equipment that you need. It may be simply afraid of just the way you look. Therefore, they, there's no disability awareness. These things all come into play before we decide, especially at Total Programs, before we decide to uh, uh, enter into the community and share the community with a disabled individual. Amanda Alvarez was on last week talking specifically about how she sets it up so that she sets up programs first and then she looks at the community and goes into those community places and talks to people and, get, and gets them ready, gives them the disability awareness they need. You know, there have been lots of different changes governmental changes, for instance, buildings. The building modification provisions of these directives apply to three general categories of buildings, existing government administration buildings and structures regardless of age, all newly constructed buildings and structures intended for use as public accommodations like stores and restaurants. So anything that was old needs to have some remedy to it. Anything that's currently being built has to take into account all the different aspects of of ADA. Um, significantly renovating and refurbishing buildings and structures and any public accommodations where the cost of modification is slight when compared to with the income that it generates. So you might have a building or a restaurant that generates hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. It's not going to cost that much for them to accommodate the individual with the disability. It may cost $20,000 to make sure that you have ramps and correct doors. But if you're pulling in a million a year and you have to pay $20,000 one time, hey, you know, that's what you do to be a good person. That's what you do to be a, a stand-up person in society. You know, the Federal Fair Housing Amendments in 1988 prohibits housing discrimination. So we talked first about buildings. Now it's about housing. 
housing discrimination based on disabilities and requires that newly constructed multifamily housing meet certain access guidelines while requiring landlords to allow disabled persons to modify existing dwellings for accessibility. So homes built with wider doors. When we refurbished our 1908 home, we built the rest of the house so that wheelchairs could get through the doors, could get down the hallways, bathtubs that could be stepped into. We actually had a plan for uh, my grandfather to live here and that didn't happen, but he, or live in our house that is, not here, but live in our house and uh, he, um, that didn't happen, but the house is prepared for an individual with disabilities. And we've had friends in wheelchairs that have been to the house and they have commented on how well the house is designed for them. That's the way it should be. It shouldn't be that it's out of the norm for us to prepare houses, schools, restaurants, stores for disabled individuals, because when we do that, we just marginalize them away. The Telecommunications Act, Individuals with edu- Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, Air Carriers Access Act, Voting Accessibility for the Elderly and Handicapped Act, and others have codified the nation that persons with disabilities have some of the same rights and privileges as other citizens. In California, in addition to the federal protections provided by the by ADA, California's Fair Employment and Housing Act provides additional protections to California employees. Notably, FEHA, the Fair Employment Housing Act, applies to employers with five or more employees and offers more extensive protections than the IDEA. With these laws and, and mindsets in place, we as various agencies can work together to put into place supports for individuals social, medical, psychological, vocational needs by giving resources to the disabled. Now, one thing that we have to look at is in our current employment, we have to put into thing, put things into place like workers' compensation. And why is that? Why do we have to put in workers' compensation? Well, there's a very good chance that during the time while you are working, especially with a population that may be behaviorally challenged, you, you may get hurt. And you may be disabled from temporarily disabled or disabled for for life. So we put measures into place lawfully and out of ethics to make sure that our employees always have a safe and secure environment to work in. But also, if something happens, we take care of them. That that workman's compensation idea has actually come from the world of disabilities. The idea that in the Rehabilitation Act 504, we were making accommodations for individuals with disabilities so that they could be in the workplace. That later transferred over to school settings where Rehabilitation Act 504, if you had a special need, for instance, say you were visually impaired, well, you don't have to be removed from your general education program and you don't have to uh, be in a special day class, which means special education all day long. You might just need larger print, or maybe you're a brailler and you can read braille as long as your textbook has, or your written assignments have been uh, turned into braille. 
those accommodations are put into place so that a person who has a disability who is non-neurotypical, who has the uh, cognitive ability to work on academics but may have a disability that interferes with that, such as the visual impairment or deaf or hard of hearing, if we can put a tool into place, we do that so that the person, the child, the student can be successful. And that actually carries over into college where the Rehabilitation Act 504 and ADA are both seen as um, laws that universities have to work with students on in order for the students to be able to be successful at the schools. I remember teaching at Loyola Marymount University about 15 years ago, and the school building was fairly new. And we were doing a class on disabilities, and we went throughout the school, throughout the campus, in wheelchairs, uh, being visually impaired, putting cotton in the ears so we couldn't hear. We wanted to see if those disabilities, immobility, visual impairment, or hearing impairment, was being uh, um, accommodated well at the university. And for the most part, we found that it was. There were some doors that opened on the right side rather than opening to the left. When you're in a wheelchair, you need the door to open to the left so that you could pull it open and with your right hand, scoot yourself into the room. So there are certain accommodations that we had to look at. And as a group of students, we were able to not only learn about disability awareness, but all of those students over the next 15 years carried that information on into their school environments, community environments to make sure that the individual disabilities was uh, being accommodated appropriately. And that little things like just like not being able to open a door didn't stop somebody from being able to go to school or having a ramp that was so steep that they couldn't wheel up it. It, it was took, took too much energy from them. So when we come back from our break, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the Rehabilitation Act and how we uh, keep people from being marginalized away and how actually over the last 30 years we've created programs where interagency collaboration is imperative, where we see that when agencies are working together, people are more successful. So we'll be back in a couple minutes and continue our conversation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. We all have challenges each and every day. How do you relax and live in a calm state? On Chaos to Calm... 
we introduce you to the concept of Renshui, a path to feeling calmer and happier. Listen Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We've been uh, talking uh, about several things today. Interagency collaboration, the concept of marginalization, concepts of ableism, where we discriminate against the disabled people because they may or may not be as able as the person next to them. You know, the first legislation which provided relief, and some of the relief actually was also financial, not only were there people being marginalized, but once we decided, okay, we're going to put these accommodations into place, well, these things cost money. So where was this money going to come from? So the, the first legislation which provided relief for some of that funding was the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Congress then enacted the Education for All Handicapped Children Act to alleviate the financial burden created by the litigation pursuant to the Rehabilitation Act. Public schools were required to evaluate handicapped children and to create an educational plan with parent input that would emulate as closely as possible the education experience of non-disabled students. Students should be placed in the least restrictive environments, one that allow the maximum possible opportunity to interact with non-impaired students. That is the concept of least restrictive environment. Least restrictive environment has been the drive behind special education and school placement since the really the mid-80s. And one of the things that we have seen is that not only does the least restrictive environment at times push certain uh, uh, placements, it may not be the most appropriate environment. So sometimes we go the least restrictive environment may not be the right word, but the most appropriate environment might be the right word. It's not always so important that there's a close relationship with or a close experience next to the non-disabled student if the the disabled student isn't ready for it yet. We don't put students into situations that they can't handle just because a law says uh, we should uh, make our best efforts to have normalization in the programs or have uh, to emulate as closely as possible the educational experience of non-disabled. We try and do that, but we do that at the comfort level and the tolerance level of the individual. That Rehabilitation Act in 1973 is a federal law codified as 29 USC 701, 
The principal sponsor of that bill was John Bridemus, and the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 replaced the, re- the Vocational Rehabilitation Act to extend and revise authorizations to states for vocational rehabilitation services. Vocational rehabilitation services are so important. First of all, they start at the school level where kids are learning pre-vocational skills. That goes now, because of laws enacted in 1997, goes from birth through age 22. So you now have those 18 to 22-year-olds in a lot of pre-vocational support programs before they graduate from school. There needs to be a special emphasis on services to those with the most severe disabilities to expand special federal responsibilities and research and training programs with respect to individuals with disabilities, to establish special responsibilities in the Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare for coordination of all programs with respect to individuals with disabilities within the Department of Health, Education and Welfare and for other purposes. A lot of people have been asking me about concerns in regards to our new Education Secretary. And 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 they have pointed out the fact that the new education secretary has a very limited public school experience. You know, the role of the federal government in education is a little different than the role of the state government. The role of the state government is to make sure that there is a curriculum in place that serves all students. So no matter what level you're at, whether you have special education needs or not, you have... Uh, a program that fits your needs. What the feds are there for is they're there to make sure equity occurs. Equity meaning that no matter whether you're in California or if you're in Nevada or if you're in Indiana or if you're in Louisiana, you have the same type of educational benefit. You have the same resources available to you. So the purpose of the Secretary of Education is to make sure that there is a high level of equity amongst all states. So Betty DeVos could do a good job as a manager if she stuck to making sure equity was there across the board. What we're seeing is possibly the changes from public sector funding to more charter school funding. And I'm not against charter schools. I'm very much for charter schools as long as they're producing the same ends as the public school setting. They are a part of the public school. They're a school that's decided to use public funds but charter their own rules. So if they're going to charter their own rules, they do have to be based on federal law. And those federal laws say that, for one, everybody has a free public education. And in special education, everybody has a free and appropriate public education. See, the, the, the welfare laws were signed into effect in the 70s by Richard Nixon. But it change really is still occurring. And we're still looking at program development. I was in a class yesterday and we were trying to look at how we could best use a visual schedule, which I've talked about before, to help all the students of the class, not just the students that it was originally intended for, which were the students with autism. And by looking at all of the students, we took all of their rights into place. The disabilities rights movement is a global movement 
to secure equal opportunities and equal rights for all people with disabilities. It's made up of organizations of disability activists around the world working together Oh, I'm sorry, I have the hiccups. Working together with similar goals and demands, such as accessibility and safety in architecture, transportation, and physical environments, equal opportunities in, in independent living, equal opportunities in employment, equal opportunities in education, housing, and freedom from discrimination, abuse, neglect, and other rights violations. Last week, we read through the disabilities rights and we remember that the person has a right to have supports to be a successful, productive part of society. A successful part of society. That's what disability activists are working so hard for. And we're working to break the institutional and physical and societal barriers that prevent people with disabilities from living their lives like other citizens. Freedom from abuse, neglect, and violations of persons' rights are also important goals of the disabilities rights movement. Abuse and neglect includes inappropriate seclusion and restraint. One of the things that is in the education program is something that's called a functional behavioral assessment. And the, I talked about this in past shows. This came about due to some abuse issues that were occurring in the early 90s. And because of the death of a client in a educational agency, uh, Teresa Hughes created a behavioral bill that did not allow for certain aversives to take place and didn't allow for certain types of, of restraints. Now, the functional behavioral assessment looks at the function behind the behavior. And what people are often doing is focusing in on the problem behavior. What is the function behind the problem behavior? Why is the kid doing it? Why does he keep doing it? What's maintaining it? What I like to do is use the same tool to look at the function of behavior behind the positive desired behaviors. Like, why is the kid doing what we want him to do? Why is he involved in this activity now where he wasn't before? Why is he accepting of the interactions now and not before? So I think it's really important as part of the disabilities rights movement to start moving away from focusing on the problem and refocusing on what successes a student or a young adult or an adult is having and how do we make those things happen. See, that's what the functional assessment does. It actually looks at what what makes this thing happen, good or bad. Well, if we're going to spend the energy to do that type of evaluation and the Rehabilitation Act says we're going to spend that kind of energy, let's use it on on looking at why certain behaviors may positively occur. Freedom from abuse, neglect, and violations of persons' rights are also important goals. Abuse and neglect includes inappropriate seclusion and, and restraint. So I read that again because I want us to realize that quite often people with with disabilities were physically handled. And when one could actually take the time to look at what the function is, what challenges that they're having, and how can we best put a plan into place. 
you know, we talked about the Wyatt Stickney Act, and we've talked about it a lot. And it is the movement away from pure custodial. Custodial meaning the providing adequate nutrition, clothing, medical help. But there's often a failure to do that. And there's a failure to provide adequate nutrition, clothing, and medical and mental health care, and a failure to provide a clean and safe living environment, as well as other issues that pose a serious threat to the physical and psychological well-being of a person with a disability. It is these rights that we are, we as an agency will work alongside of many other agencies to ensure the appropriate treatment of lives of in, for individuals with disabilities. I have spent the last 30 years trying to work in schools, work in hospital settings, work in group home settings to make sure that people with disabilities were treated just as well as anybody else, as a non-disabled, as a neurotypical person. It's been a hard road. I see things starting to change. For instance, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, maybe we had the autism walk here in the Pasadena area. Thousands of people showed up in support of their brother, sister, cousin, friend living with autism. Thousands of people. And that was just in our Pasadena area. The Woodsmalls, Mark and Eva Woodsmall, who have been on the show, have started a vineyard. And they started that vineyard just so that there would be vocational supports for individuals with disabilities. School districts that I work with are opening up all sorts of programs, and now they're not shying away from trying to do counseling to assist with the mental health support of individuals with disabilities. I see parents groups, parents getting together, talking about what things work for them, what challenges that they have. I see universities trying to open up new programs. I see fitness trainers trying to bring people with disabilities into their organizations, into their agencies so that they can have that successful, healthy life too. These are all things that we have seen over the years and just starting to develop. But now more and more do we see people working together, agencies collaborating, fitness groups working with behavioral groups so that if there's behavioral problems at the fitness program that they, they don't stop the fitness program that they can put a plan into place to best help it we've done a lot of thinking on this show over the last 13 weeks and we're going to do a lot more we're going to pick up again fairly soon we've come to the end of our season and we have thoroughly enjoyed the last 13 weeks we're going to take a little time off, and we'll be back for a show in July. So I'm going to do a live show again in July and back full-time in August. And I really want to thank you for your continued dedication to the show and its use as a resource. It's really important to me that you start utilizing it even more as a resource if you feel comfortable with that. We've got lots of good listeners now. We have many people listening live, and we have thousands of people downloading the shows later, please use the show as a resource. Use it for your advantage. And we'll see you again live soon. Remember that on Strategies and Solutions with Dr. Sean, living the challenge, we are about your success and know that each day can be a new future you dream of having in your life. 
See you next time. Blessings. Thanks so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.